0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 310, December twenty second, 1941, A Date Which Will Live in Infamy. Last time, the Japanese, coming south from Formosa, were able to land troops in northern Luzon on December 10th and 11th. And this came after the thrashing General Brereton's Far East Air Force took most notably at Clark Field on December 8th, just hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Following this solid start in the north was another invasion, this one on the island of Mindanao, below Luzon, on December 20th. As things stood, the majority of MacArthur's forces were trapped, left with only a fraction of the planes and naval vessels that the enemy would come with when the main attack got underway. And that was to start on December 22nd. Still, MacArthur, for his own particular reasons, was not unduly worried, perhaps as he was counting on reinforcements that were currently on their way to Brisbane, Australia, three and a half thousand miles away. As far back as 1916, American military planners, in envisioning a Japanese attack on the Philippines, decided that it was best to have a force meet the enemy on the beach to engage them there. But this would not be the all-out effort. While this delaying action took place, the bulk of the island's forces would retreat down the Bataan Peninsula, maybe even to the island of Corregidor in Manila Bay, if warranted. This move would hopefully hold off the Japanese until reinforcements came, probably from Hawaii. But later, starting in 1936, when Major General George Grunert was in command of all the forces on the islands, he changed this to actively stopping the enemy right there on the beaches. And this was to be done with American forces and the Philippine scouts, elite forces highly trained and known for stamina and fierceness. But as we have seen, MacArthur was now in charge, and in fact, Grunert would leave the islands just weeks before the Japanese attacked. Overall, MacArthur kept Grunert's plan, but made tweaks that honestly made little sense, given the state of local forces. First, he would have Philippine Army units meet the Japanese on the beach. To his thinking, they knew the territory. True enough, they would be highly motivated. Also true. But motivation does not stop bullets or superior tactics. As for the bulk of the General's forces, including most of the American troops, they would be in central Luzon. The plan was to still fight the enemy on the beaches, but if they should break through, hopefully there would be enough time to call up the just over 100,000 reserves. As for keeping the American troops in the middle of the island, it's possible that MacArthur was hedging his bets, should the enemy land somewhere else besides Lingayen Gulf, to the northwest of Manila. But the Achilles' heel to this plan was again the ill-trained Philippine troops who were to meet the enemy as they landed. But the problem was much worse than just a lack of training. On paper, MacArthur had access to a 120,000-manned Philippine army. This broke down to 10 undersized specifically 7,643 men, light infantry divisions, and seven of these were on Luzon. But here is where reality came in. Most of these soldiers would have the aged Lee Enfield rifles, but of these, the extractors were defective, the device that removes the spent cartridge. The locals quickly figured out how to use bamboo sticks to take out the cartridge, A timely process. This alone made these guns the equivalent of muskets from a bygone era. Only a few regiments of the Philippine divisions would have the updated semi-automatic M1 rifle. Again, the defenders lacked quality equipment and enough time to become proficient in their use. And because of equipment shortages and ammunition shortages, most of the Philippine troops... When they fired their guns in battle, it was their first time. As for more substantial firepower, each division's artillery regiment was supposed to have 24 howitzers, and they probably would, by early next spring. For now, that number was a dismal two each. There was also little to no anti-tank or anti-aircraft guns. Thus far, defending the island through no fault of their own, was an ill-equipped mob, with guns almost as long as the men were tall, though they had not fired them yet, and barely any heavier guns for scattering the enemy infantry, tanks, or airplanes. And then there was the language barrier, and not the one between the Americans and the locals, where the former barely tolerated the latter for racist reasons. The educated Filipinos spoke English and Spanish, but after that, there were hundreds of dialects, and as the men had been pulled together from the various islands, many could not communicate with at least half of their unit, nor practically all of their officers. Thus, quick response times to emergencies, which is exactly what war is, would be impossible. All this combined with the 21,000 or so Americans on the island though most of them were not infantry, but rather were in artillery units, was what the general had to work with. But there is one more aspect to MacArthur's defenses that cannot be overlooked, vital as it is, and that is the idea of follow-up, once an order has been given. Perhaps it was the general's ego, but whereas General William Slim or General Stilwell would have checked on the progress of his men, down to the squad or platoon level, MacArthur did not check on the smaller details of his command, like the language problem, the open racism of his American troops, or the lack of real training, like target practice. After all, the difference between a professional and an amateur is practice. Being a big-picture man, the General had no real idea of what his men were capable of, but somehow, in his own head, His greatness, there is no other word for it, would see them through. December 22, 1941, would be an eventful day for all the major players on Luzon and in Washington. But first things first. That morning, 85 transports carrying the bulk of General Homa's 14th Army neared Lingayen Gulf on the northwest shore of Luzon. Going ashore first would be the 48th Division, minus one regiment that had landed back on December 10th further north, the 9th Infantry Regiment, and the 4th and 7th Tank Regiments, though these were actually battle-sized, with 36 light and 52 medium tanks, plus a large artillery contingent. Protecting this convoy were two light cruisers and 16 destroyers with other support craft, Not that the Americans had anything comparable to throw at this naval shield. And just finishing off what the invaders were coming with, General Homa would have access to the 5th Air Division, with its 189 planes of 83 various-sized bombers and 34 reconnaissance planes, along with the 21st and 23rd air flotillas of the 11th Air Fleet, made up of 247 aircraft in total, 114 fighters, 24 seaplanes, 12 reconnaissance planes, with various other aircraft. But the ace up General Homa's sleeve, besides his numbers, were these particular Mitsubishi 86M20 fighters. Engineers had figured out how to add drop tanks. Thus, these amazing fighters could fly 550 miles which made flight from Formosa to the central Philippines possible. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. That's yahoofinance.com. MacArthur was informed that morning of some 70 to 80 transports being spotted in the Lingayen Gulf. This estimation was pretty accurate, even though the sun had yet to rise. Right away, he sent a message to Washington of the enormous tactical discrepancy he was about to face estimating that the enemy was coming at him with 80,000 to 100,000 men. Yet, as we have seen, General Homa only had 62,000 at his disposal, half of what MacArthur had on paper. At 5.17 a.m., the landing started. By 7.30 a.m., three regiments were on the eastern Lingayen beaches. Not that everything had gone according to plan. Due to the darkness, at least at first, but more importantly, the high surf, the dampness made inoperable the invaders' radios and forced a cancellation of all heavy equipment coming to shore. A few of the landing craft had even rolled over. Now, this is hindsight, granted, but had the general put his best along the beaches where he was convinced the main enemy landings would take place, much Japanese blood could have been shed. As it was, only one Filipino unit, under the command of Major General Jonathan Wainwright, actively engaged and held up the opposing force in front of them. Which was better than it sounds, for Wainwright had the 21st and the 11th Philippine divisions lined up along the 120-mile beach front of Lingayen Gulf. Yet this was only a momentary pause, Besides which, General Homa was too clever by half. He had already ordered his officers going ashore not to attempt a breakout this soon, as it would only serve to get them cut off and annihilated. In other words, Homa was subscribing to Shakespeare's "'Tis best to weigh the enemy more mighty than he seems." As it was, with his troops landing on the eastern shore, his first order was for them to move south and take control of the southern shore, for that's where the bulk of his ships were heading to, and that's where he expected the bulk of the defenders to be, hence his landing troops north of this. Now that the enemy troops had landed, thus committing themselves, MacArthur made his opening opposing move. Sending 12 self-propelled 75 75-millimeter guns and the 192nd Light Tank Battalion, it was hoped that they would check the enemy infantry as nothing heavier had been spotted on the beach. However, MacArthur would cripple his own counterstroke. As Major General Jonathan Wainwright, respected by his men up and down the line, and known for his mastery of tactics, was in charge of North Luzon's defenses, these reinforcements should have been put under his command, if at the very least, to avoid cross-purposes. A modern saying regarding this is, not having too many cooks in the kitchen. But that's exactly what the general did, by not putting these forces under Wainwright, so he could maximize his response. So, as the 26th Cavalry Regiment, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Clinton A. Pierce, reached the enemy, these Philippine scouts, highly trained, clashed with the Japanese 48th Reconnaissance Battalion. Some jumped off their horses to fight on foot, while others stayed mounted to attempt a flanking movement. It must be noted that this regiment, within the next three weeks, would engage in the last cavalry charge, in U.S. history. However, being on patrol since December 8th, and having to ride for miles just to reach the enemy at Damortis, about four miles south of where the enemy had first landed, the scouts were exhausted, thus easily pushed back by the invaders. With the first wave of defenders checked and eventually scattered, the Japanese tanks came in, having finally been unloaded doing serious damage to the remaining cavalrymen and their mounts. The surviving defenders of this horse-versus-tank battle found themselves having to dash inland for a mile or two before the tanks would quit pursuing them, somewhere near Rosario, to the southeast. Still, all this had taken time, and it would be the 26th Cavalry that were the only ones to seriously delay the enemy. Holding up some four enemy infantry regiments for six hours. Also on December 22nd, MacArthur heard back from Washington. Alas, it was not to say that Admiral Chester Nimitz, CNC U.S. Pacific Fleet, would be risking one of his three carriers to lead a task force to bring reinforcements. Instead, the message was MacArthur was getting a promotion to four stars a rank that he held as Chief of Staff. Admiral Thomas Hart, about to begin a meeting of command staff, congratulated the General, hoping to use this goodwill to launch into his prepared speech. MacArthur's only response, however, was that he finally had his rightful rank back, as if any of this would help the situation in the Philippines. During the same meeting, Admiral Hart was hoping to discuss with MacArthur plans for a final evacuation, for clearly the developing situation warranted it. The enemy was on Luzon, in multiple locations, and the Allies did not have the air or naval power to seriously hamper their advance, nor enough proper ground troops to push them back into the sea. But again, the general took over the conversation, ignored the subject of evacuation, and tore into Hart about his sub's inability to stop the invasion. This was unfair, as for during a two-week period around this time, no less than 10 of Hart's subs would go hunting, and in that time, they launched 28 torpedoes. Few made contact with the intended target, and of those, few detonated. Again, it was the faulty torpedoes themselves that the Americans would not completely correct for another two years. It's worth noting that Admiral Hart had known MacArthur for 40 years before this moment, and what he was seeing now did not bring him much hope. He would write of this moment, Douglas knows a lot of things which are not so, and he is an able and convincing talker, a combination that spells disaster. Adding to this tale of naval woe, between December 8th and April 1st, 1942, when hostilities would mostly be over on the islands, the Asiatic fleet would sink only two enemy destroyers and twelve merchant ships. The Allies would lose many more in these days in these southeastern Asian waters. But, like MacArthur's rather undependable defensive dispositions, the Asiatic fleet's response was rather watered down, pun intended. Again, U.S. military leaders, Army and Navy, felt confident that if the Japanese came, they would land troops in Lingayen Gulf. Then why were there so few American subs waiting there for the enemy, one of them being Lieutenant Commander Eugene B. McKinney's Salmon? Yes, his torpedoes, just like most of the others, would fail that day. Out of 66 torpedoes used by American subs, only two enemy ships were sunk in the first 24 hours of the invasion. As the combatants clashed on the shores of Lingayen Gulf, McKinney ordered his sub, Salmon, into the fray. McKinney was considered, at the ripe old age of 38, far too along in years to be aggressive. Even worse, he had taken a law degree. Thus, his superiors and his crew just knew they were sailing with a dud. But proving them all wrong, the sub still surfaced, charged at the armada, while it offloaded and shielded the troops. This bold move surprised the Japanese crews, as prudence demanded the single sub leave the area. But instead of doing that, McKinney went in, got as close as he dared, as two destroyers were closing in on him, and only then did he let loose a wide spread of torpedoes. Not knowing that there was a good chance these fish were defective, the two destroyers turned away from each other and put on speed. But it was too late. Besides, McKinney had anticipated this with his spread. Both destroyers were hit. Damage was sustained by the two, but not enough to pull them out of the line. One can't help but wonder if the torpedoes had been up to snuff, would the two destroyers have ended up at the bottom of the gulf? Further, McKinney stayed in the area as long as he dared, but when it got too hot, he took advantage of a rain squall and disappeared. That night he would return and stage service to spy out enemy movements, even though he was spotted and harassed. Not your typical lawyer. Which leads to the next question. As there were twenty-something other subs in Manila Bay waiting for God knows what, what if more of them had been with McKinney, or even better, along the north and west coasts of Luzon? might the enemy have suffered tremendous losses even before landing their first infantrymen? True, those torpedoes may have been does as well, but the fighting spirit of the American submariners would have gained the respect of the enemy. Another sub to see action that day, in all Admiral Hart would send six other subs into the Gulf, was USS S-38, Commissioned in 1923, commanded by Lieutenant Clifford H. Stoney Roper, S-38 moved into the Gulf that morning of the invasion, just before sunrise. At 6.45 a.m., Stoney spotted four transports coming his way, escorted by two destroyers. Having the right kind of aggressive nature the Navy liked, he waited until the targets were within 1,000 yards. At 7.10 a.m., his sub fired four bow tubes, but all missed. Reloading quickly as the destroyers, now aware of the sub's presence, started pinging to make contact, the captain stayed quiet, but close by. For whatever reason, no depth charges were released. Dancing to get into another firing position, at 7.58 a.m., S-38 launched two torpedoes, at a cargo ship that was at anchor. Less than a minute later, the 5,445-ton Heyamaru erupted into flame. S-38 would have to spend the rest of the day lying on the bottom of the Gulf for this, but that night she would make good her escape. Admiral Hart, nay, the U.S. Navy, would only have one more sinking to their credit for the month of December. The next day, December 23rd, USS SEAL, SS-183, would leave the Gulf and come upon the transport Hayataka-Maru, just north of the Japanese landings. There, getting into position, the sub's torpedoes finally worked as designed and sent the transport to the bottom. Still, as the number of enemy ships who got away from the American subs only grew, Only in time would the Navy figure out that it was the magnetic detonators that were at fault. Back at headquarters in Manila, as for not giving up the fight, MacArthur had other ideas, ideas that may yet save the day, and these he shared with General George Marshall in Washington. Why not send to Manila 230 more P-40 fighters through British-held Cairo? With those, he could wipe out the enemy troops on land, harass, may even sink their transports, which would wreck their entire invasion plan. However, to this, there were those in the war and Navy departments that openly said, though respectfully, those planes would be a waste of material, even if we could get them through to MacArthur. The Philippines were going to be overrun. It was simply a matter of numbers, distance, and time. No, the general would have to fight with what he had, even if he would not accept that. Besides, now in the war proper, Washington had to worry about defending Pearl Harbor, Alaska, the Panama Canal, and the American West Coast. The Philippines, like Burma, was at the end of a very long list of emergencies though Marshall was sincere in trying to get the General help, if it was all possible, and if he could get it there in time. Still not giving up, the General requested that the Chinese start a major offensive to hopefully distract the Japanese, or even better, get the Soviets to attack Japanese forces in Manchuria. Of course, this last part went against the agreement between Soviet Russia and Japan, But MacArthur wasn't worried about details at the moment. And another event of December 22nd was the start of the Arcadia Conference between the United States and Great Britain to come up with an overall strategy. But even before the first discussion of that day, FDR and Churchill had already decided the Allies would have a Europe-first strategy which was the last nail in MacArthur's defensive coffin. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just before I let you go, I just want to say hello to some new members and thank those who have donated recently. And um, some of you donated right after the show came out, so don't worry, I will get you next time, I promise. So as far as welcoming aboard the new members, oh, I almost forgot. With me today is my youngest daughter, Sophie, who, as far as she knows, is my favorite. Hello, Sophie. That was really good. Okay, so, latest members, uh, I'd like to uh, welcome and say thank you to Stanley Favre. Uh, There's a person named Andy. Sorry, Andy, I did not get your last name, but I know that a family member got this membership for you, so thank you to her and to you for for coming on board. Um, John Calvert, who is not only a member, but he donated, so yes, John, you are my new best friend. Uh, Thomas Rasmussen, sorry about that, Thomas. Michael Gallagher, I'm um, Tom da- <laughs> Douglas Forbes. Sorry, Douglas. No. Robert Bruning, Amy Jorge Hester, Christopher Jennings, and as far as those who made uh, donations, uh, James uh, Sherson, Kenneth Lamb, Matthias Grimm, Dale Fowler, Darren Edmonds, Christopher Adet or do, Either way, it's pretty cool. Um, Ed Brown, John Wrigley, Sarah Probasco, Dale Olason, and Bruce Werner. So again, thank you very much for contributing to the show. Uh, I'll get the next episode out as soon as I can, and we'll continue on uh, with the invasion of the Philippines. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. That was really good. <laughs>